Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. I'm thrilled to welcome our guests today. Dennis Thomas is Director of Business Development and Marketing for Water Electrolysis at Accelerate by Cummins. Before joining the company in 2014, he worked for eight years in the solar industry in Europe. Dennis holds a master's degree in business administration and renewable energy. Michael Barch is the Asia Pacific Sales and Business Development Manager. Before joining the company in 2020, Michael worked for 26 years across mining, petroleum, water treatment and geothermal sectors. He's an industrial chemist with qualifications in science, business administration and energy. Very warm welcome, guys. Uh, welcome, Dennis. I think you're in Belgium, aren't you? And Michael, uh, you're in Adelaide. So welcome to the Exploring Hydrogen podcast. And I think we've uh, overcome the first hurdle, which was uh, trying to tie up three different time zones. How are you guys going? Hello. Doing good. Thank you. Good stuff. Yeah, well, thanks. Great. And um, first of all, can you give me an overview of Accelerate by Cummings as a company? And yeah, perhaps you can uh, can break it down, maybe Cummings as a group and then Accelerate. Yes, Sure. I assume uh, most of you are familiar with the company called uh, Cummins Inc. We are a U.S. company, uh, more than 104 years old, uh, specialized in engines and gensets. A couple of years ago, we have made, let's say, several acquisitions in the field of new technologies to support our organization to deliver low-carbon solutions for our customers. And so we created Accelera a few months ago, which is the new name, which is a brand inside our company, which is hosting all those new technologies that will support our customers in decarbonize their applications. Inside Accelera, we find uh, five main businesses. Uh, one is about um, electrolyzers, so the production of um, hydrogen with breaking water with electricity. The second one is fuel cells. Uh, fuel cells are devices that will use hydrogen as a fuel to generate power. Then we have also electrified components. This is mainly electrified components in the field of heavy duty uh, mobility. You might find there, say, uh, battery modules, battery packs, and this type of technologies. Uh, the fourth one is um, e powertrain systems. That's uh, mainly the electrical axle uh, system for uh, heavy duty mobility. And the last one is uh, traction systems, where you find our activities in the field of like motors, inverters. Everything you need actually to electrify, I'd say, the mobility, uh, the mobility sector. And both Michael and I, uh, we belong to the uh, units working on uh, electrolysis. Great. How many people? How big is your team? Um, so Cummins is a whole. Uh, we are over uh, seventy thousand people worldwide. Wow. We have um, a presence in uh, more than one hundred and ninety countries, uh, usually with uh, say Cummins uh, entities. But we have also a wide network of, uh, say, distributors and, and dealers, more than 10,000, let's say, dealer points around the globe. And inside Accelera, we are between two and 3,000 employees, so among those uh, 70,000. So we are clearly, I'd say, a company in, in transition, and, and Accelera is really the engine of growth of uh, Cummins in the field of uh, zero emission technologies. 
Exciting. Perhaps we can, as you guys are focused on the the water electrolysis area, perhaps we can delve into that a little bit further. And could you explain to the listeners the different types of electrolyzer? So um, yeah, obviously alkaline, PEM, solid oxide, and anion exchange exchange membrane. Yeah. So Denny mentioned there's been a whole series of acquisitions that have been made over a period of time, and that includes alkaline and PEM technology, which came with the original Hydrogenics acquisition. That represents nearly 60 to 70 years of product development, technology development. That's fully commercialised and been deployed worldwide. And then there's more niche technologies, which are also in the background and that are being funded and investigated whilst those commercial technologies continue to be deployed. Because Cummins is well-renowned for the uh, the research and development. I was reading somewhere that uh, over the years you've spent well over a billion dollars in research and, and development. And perhaps you could talk a bit further then on some of the kind of advantages and the challenges of those technologies. So perhaps if we firstly look at alkaline electrolyzers. Yes, certainly. So, so alkaline is a very old and very mature technology. That's the first technology that has been used in the field of electrolysis. Uh, we are active with that technology for more than 70 years through, let's say, the historical activities uh, inside allogenics. What is important to know is that this technology likes to be operated in more like a stable uh, mode and that there is a, a use of KOH, so a potassium hydroxide, as the electrolyte. So that's a, a chemical uh, which is mixed together with the water, which will help the electrolysis reaction, that will help that uh, with the help of that with power, we are going to break water molecules, so H2O, into hydrogen molecules, H2, and oxygen molecules, O2. So it's very reliable and, and very proven, but also it takes quite some space uh, in terms of a uh, footprint. And inside the alkaline uh, electrolysis family, there is a distinction between atmospheric alkaline technologies. So they produce some hydrogen at atmospheric pressure and pressurized technologies, which already directly inside the equipment will uh, produce hydrogen at a given pressure. On our side, uh, we operate our alkaline technology at uh, 10 bar. Then if I may, I I can directly continue because uh, I think it's interesting to compare the different technologies. On PEM, uh, it stands for proton exchange membrane. For that technology, the the membrane and and the electrolytes, everything is solid. So it means that we are only dealing with pure water, uh, which is an advantage from, let's say, an environmental standpoint. The technology is rather new. Uh, it has like something like 20 to 30 years of history. But what is uh, very interesting is the possibility to operate the technology in high dynamic uh, conditions. It makes it a technology of choice uh, when you want to combine it uh, with wind energy or with solar energy, which are uh, dynamic by nature. Also, uh, PEM technologies, you can operate them at high current densities. It means that you can put more current uh, for a given um, uh, surface area. And this uh, allows the technology to be much more compact than alkaline technology. And when the footprint, let's say, is important for the customer or for a given application, it may actually be the technology of choice. For instance, we are, um, let's say, uh, evaluating this technology to work on offshore systems. And when you want to go offshore, I mean, space and weight are super important and only PEM technology could actually do this type of work. On our side, we are active on PEM technology for more than 20 years, but it really became commercial around 2017 on our side. 
And we've made a clear uh, focus on BEM technology right now because we see that the electrolyzer market is mainly driven by the link with wind and solar, and we see clear advantages uh, for BEM technology. The two other technologies that have been mentioned by Michael, uh, solid oxide and anion exchange membrane, they are in R&D phase. Solid oxide is very promising in terms of efficiency because it operates at very high temperatures in the range of 500 degrees um, Celsius. And so that's thanks to this high temperature range that they can achieve this high efficiency. But one of the, there are two drawbacks to this technology. First is that you need to have a free source of heat, of steam, actually to operate the technology, which is not always, I'd say, easy to find. And as it is at high temperature, it likes to be also operated in stable conditions. The last one is anion exchange membrane. It seems a very interesting technology because it's combining advantages of both alkaline and PEM technologies, but it's still at a very early stage of development and not yet ready for, I'd say, massive commercialization at the scale that we need today. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Dennis, and a great, great overview. Could you talk about the concerns about the catalyst being used in PEM? And I think some of the concerns is, uh, you know, how much uh, recycling of the electrolyzers is going to improve over the next few years and some of the challenges about reducing the catalyst required? Yes. So that, so there's clearly one drawback of, of PEM technology, and that's a, a major point of attention on our side. That's uh, the use of iridium and platinum actually inside the, the cell of, uh, say, the uh, proton exchange membrane uh, technology. Obviously, on our side, we are working on the reduction of the use of those uh, rare materials and to make sure that there will be, let's say, um, enough of those materials actually to supply and to manufacture the quantity of electrolyzer that we want to manufacture. But we need to do that without making any compromise on the performance of the technology. So that's something which we already started a couple of years ago. And we managed to reduce by a factor 10 uh, the use of those rare materials. And we still expect that we can reduce by a factor 10 uh, the use for, I'd say, uh, a megawatt of this type of technology. And it's also um, very important because it has a major cost impact on the technology of PEM in comparison to, to alkaline. Obviously, once those products are in the field, it is of value to recycle those materials. And it is indeed uh, possible to recycle those. Currently, there are not, let's say, a lot of volume of those materials to be recycled, but that's clearly something we are investig investigating together uh, with our suppliers. That's great. And what sizes of the electrolyzer do uh, Accelera manufacture? Yeah, so our base platform for the PEM system starts at 500 normal meter cube per hour. The trade name is Highlyzer. So we call it the Highlyzer 500. All our PEM technology is 30 bar. The next platform is the Highlyzer 1000. And that's been our signature project in Beckencore, Canada. That's a 20 megawatt plant comprising of that Highlyzer 1000 product platform. The next platform above that is the Highlyzer 5000. So essentially there's the three production module platforms that we have, the 500, the 1000 and the 5000. And that 5000 is going into commercial production this year for field deployment uh, next year. And what is important to, to notice in uh, the information provided by Michael is that the number which is associated with our product name uh, is in fact the capacity of the product in a normal cubic meter of hydrogen per hour. So the, the 500 platform corresponds to 2.5 megawatts of input power. The Alasa 1000 corresponds to 5 megawatts. 
and the Alizer 5000 corresponds to 25 megawatts. So when we are actually dealing with projects of, let's say, hundreds of megawatts or tens of megawatts, then we are actually choosing the right platform to get the right combination and the right redundancy between those different modules to reach the desired uh, capacity. On the smaller products, we offer containerized uh, systems uh, which are integrating uh, both the, the stacks, what we call the balance of stack, and also the balance of plants. It means that those products are plug and play and very easy to install for, say, a small scale industrial customer, while the Alas 1000 and 5000 are products that need to be integrated by any PC company because there is a lot of, let's say, customization that needs to be, let's say, applied to those products to make that fit uh, with an industrial uh, process. Yes, yeah. And you mentioned the project in Canada. Could you talk about some of the more interesting and challenging projects, you know, if, if it's that one in Canada or, or elsewhere across the globe that you're working on at the moment? Yes, so the project Early Key, the Bécancourt in, in Quebec, is still, I'd say, one of our major reference in the field of PEM technology. It was delivered and commissioned a bit more than two years and a half ago. The interesting fact about this project is that it is a commercial project meaning that they, they need to run the electrolyzer on a daily basis, actually to produce hydrogen. This hydrogen is being liquefied and then delivered by Elikid to industrial customers. So that's one of the units where we get a lot of data from uh, technology. And also it was the first unit where we have, let's say, commercialized the Alizer 1000 and also a new generation of pump cell stacks. On this project, we have indeed uh, installed stacks of uh, individual size of 2.5 megawatts. So it means that it is really the project where we validated our technology and where all our new customers, they want to visit that site to really understand actually how it would look like on, on their premises. On top of that, uh, we have signed a number of contracts uh, with the same product. Most of the projects on which we are working, they are confidential, but some of them are public. Uh, I can mention uh, projects in, in the US with Linda, uh, with Atura Power, uh, but also with Nextera, uh, which are all in the range of 20 to um, 35 megawatts. With the new platform, the Eyelizer 5000, uh, with the 25 megawatt module, uh, we have signed a contract uh, again in Canada uh, with uh, Varen Carbon Recycling, uh, which is an, an e-fuel project uh, involving also um, Shell. We are going to deliver this unit in 2025 for four units. So that's uh, in the range of 80 to 100 megawatts, the total size of, of the project. We have also um, our contracts uh, ongoing in North America and in Europe, but I cannot mention or disclose the name of those customers. But really what is interesting to notice is that I'd say last year uh, we were mainly, I'd say, um, involved in projects in the double digit uh, megawatt range. And, and we have really now crossed the line of 100 megawatts. And our strategy is actually to, to expand on the size of projects in a controlled manner. Uh, because also what we think is that it is important not to make too big steps. You need to validate the previous step, let's say, before going to the to the next one. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you've seen the, the development of the hydrogen market worldwide, but it kind of ties in, in nicely. So you say, from, in your experience, uh, customers are, are leaning more towards the, well, from the double digit to the triple digit type projects at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, well, certainly in Australia, I think those trends are evident. I mean, our largest electrolyzer facility here is still 1.25 megawatts. Yeah, yeah. yeah so all that market movement is overseas and primarily Europe and the, and the USA, those larger 
projects that are being deployed. I think all the business decision-making processes are all moving a lot faster. That's fueled by some of the regulatory and policy incentives that are out there that we we yet to see here in Australia. That's why I think you're seeing a lot of those larger projects being approved a lot quicker and overseas. And looping back to the project in Canada, you said it was uh, you really validated the technology. What were some of the learnings through that process and was there anything that you might be able to, to share with the listeners? Yes, sure. First of all, we've made a lot of learnings on the technology itself. It means that uh, that's on those first projects that you um, experiment on, say, the child disease of the technology and that you fix them and that you get the learning, actually, that you integrate in your product. And there have been, let's say, several of those learnings uh, both on the balance of stack, but also on, on the cell stack uh, themselves. We had, had some failures on, on those stacks, which we have replaced and, and we made the learnings. A lot of learnings on the integration of the product uh, together with the balance of plants and also with the uh, rectifiers, because obviously you need electricity to power electrolyzers, but you need DC current. And so you work with rectifiers. And on this one, you, we could test a specific rectifier technology and again, we have made some of interesting learnings there. And probably the last one, this is about the testing strategy, actually during the commissioning. Most of our customers, they expect that uh, we test completely all the electrolyzers, let's say, at our factory. But uh, when you increase the size of the product, it becomes a challenge, actually, to test a module of, in this case, uh, 5 megawatts. And it was like uh, four modules of 5 megawatts. So on this one, the strategy was that uh, we would not test completely the uh, electrolyzer product uh, at the factory. Uh, we would do like a, a partial uh, testing, mainly like input-output type of testing, um, a pressure test, a leak test, etc. And the system would produce um, hydrogen for the first time directly on the customer side. And this is a strategy that has proven to be effective. And that's what we plan to do also in the future on the larger projects. And this is also... What we can do with a standardization is that uh, the more you standardize your product, the less you need to test it. And so uh, it is impacting your delivery time, but also the cost to test to this type of technology. So those are, say, the main learnings from this project. And did you find the ambient temperature in Canada or, you know, what are you seeing? Worldwide? Does that have much an effect on the efficiency of the electrolyzers? On that particular project, uh, it was not an issue at all because there was a uh, pre-existing building. And so the electrolyzer is installed inside the building. And so all the temperature say, aspect is managed at the envelope of this building. In fact, this product is designed for indoor use. So it is not impacted by the climate. It's say, treated at the building level. And I should have explained that. So probably 70 to 80% of our listenership are in Australia. And we're getting a growing listener base overseas in Europe, Southeast Asia and America. So what I guess with, with that in mind, what are you seeing? And you mentioned that the, the size and, and scale of the Australian projects are, are catching up, but uh, some way behind the rest of the world. Have you got any further comments on the Australian market versus the likes of Canada and the States and Europe? Fundamentally, we're a remote region. Um, and if you look at all the core manufacturing points, they're all in the Northern Hemisphere. So that speed to market is by far um, faster a lot of the regulatory approvals are local. And what we're seeing here, certainly in Australia, is that we look, well, there is a demand for regional codes and standards adoption. So products actually have to be modified before they can be introduced. 
So there's a lag factor there in terms of being able to deploy or modify existing designs in order for them to be accepted. So there's a few hurdles that I guess a lot of OEMs are, are working their way through and that, that all impacts uh, the speed at which those projects can be deployed. Yes. Do Accelera have intention of setting up a manufacturing facility here in Australia? And if so, when is that likely to happen or what would the triggers be for that to happen? So currently we have manufacturing facilities in Europe, America and China. Those factories are incumbent facilities that were acquired and there's also been expansions on those same facilities. As the regional demand grows and some of these projects that are coming online, we will initially be importing products mainly from Europe, but it'll get to a point where uh, the project size here in Australia is big enough to justify local manufacturing. So for us, it's generally about 500 megawatts a year of offtake that would justify the CapEx investment, and that would sort of create that anchor project, which can then foster subsequent waves of customer offtake. So the, the project needs to be big enough to secure that initial offtake, and from there, uh, other projects can cascade from that factory. So it's under evaluation, and it's just a matter of time. Cummins has already demonstrated that we're committed to building greenfield facilities. It takes about two years from CapEx investment to actually completing those factories. And Spain will be the first example of that, and then China will follow. Are any of your factories overseas uh, more of the mass production or flow-type manufacturing? Yes, good to mention that uh, we're changing, uh, modernizing the way uh, we manufacture electrolyzers, and, and we can uh, distinguish, let's say, two products. First, there is the cell stack production lines. And you know, a cell stack is a repetition of layering down of different layers of cells. For our 2.5 megawatt cell stack, for instance, it contains 424 cells. And in each cell, there are, let's say, different layers. So it is a very repetitive process. And uh, we are introducing more and more automation into this process. Uh, so it means that we need scale to justify uh, this investment into automation. And we are also working heavily on standardization and quality management. Because even if you have, I'd say, a very proven and automated process, you need to make sure that everything you get into this process is of high quality to ensure the quality of the end product. So clearly on the cell stack manufacturing, uh, we'll go to robots and automatization of the manufacturing process. On the rest of the product, which we call typically the balance of stack, there is a lot of metal pipes, instrumentation, pressure vessels. So it's more an assembly type of activity. And there, obviously, you cannot do everything in an automated manner. And what we've been doing together with the teams of Cummins, uh, because we, we are a manufacturer of engines, uh, we manufacture more than 1.2 million engines per year. So we know how to manufacture. And we know that you cannot automatize everything. So on this one, uh, we have decided to move to a flow-based manufacturing process, which is quite similar to what you see in the automotive industry. Instead of having your product assembled at one single site and have all the teams actually come into your product and making the different interventions one after the other, 
you have your product moving in the flow. To give an example on the Analyzer 500, and we have divided the, the production process in six main steps. And then you have always the same teams making the same intervention on the product and with just-in-time delivery of all the components that need to actually enter into the product. And this is clearly uh, what we intend to do in all our production sites. And so we've been working a lot on, uh, say, designing those, those new processes, and we are implementing them, say, in the different factories. We have started already um, in Belgium, uh, which was, an, say, an existing factory. Uh, that will be also the case in the factory uh, we have built in Spain that will start production in the first quarter of next year. So we will be using this uh, flow-based manufacturing. Uh, it is super interesting uh, because it gives us a lot of flexibility also managing more the production time of our equipment. And obviously, to achieve this, uh, you need a high standardization of the product. It means that we can even start say, manufacturing a product before it is assigned to a specific customer. That's great. So we've spoken about the technology improvements. We've spoken about the cost production as such and the economies of scale. Are there any other challenges that are at the front of your mind at the moment? Perhaps any concerns with jobs or skills? How much is social license and social engagement part of your discussions at the moment? And again, we spoke about supply chain improvements and optimization. Is there anything further that you'd like to add on that? Yes, there are many challenges. Otherwise, <laughs> we will not be here on this podcast. It will be a very much a market. I can cover like two challenges and then I will let Michael comment on the other ones. But first of all, there are many challenges on the product because the business case of producing hydrogen with renewable electricity is not obvious because currently in many cases, it's still a bit more expensive than the conventional way of say producing hydrogen with natural gas. Uh, it's a new product. The size is increasing. There is the increased link with renewable power which is bringing quite a lot of challenges because obviously you also need to bring those new, uh, say, uh, renewable assets uh, next to the electrolyzer, especially if you look at Australia where you want to build, let's say, gigawatt scale, let's say, electrolyzer plants. It means that you probably need to build two gigawatts of wind and solar, let's say, attached to it. Also, when you analyze projects of that scale, they are not standalone projects. They are connected to something either uh, to a pipeline, to an ammonia plant, to a steel factory. So the integration of this hydrogen plant to the downstream process uh, is also quite complex. There are a lot of new players. So there's obviously the manufacturers, uh, O&Ms like us, but we are also EPC companies involved in that space. For them, uh, electrolyzer technologies are new. And so they need to get used to it. There are some risks associated to say the building of this type of uh, new plants. And, and so it means that there is a lot of, let's say, discussions uh, with EPC companies. For the customers, uh, they need to find an offtake for the hydrogen. And it's not always easy uh, because uh, when you have already an application uh, using hydrogen today, they already have commercial contracts uh, with an industrial gas company or they probably even produce the hydrogen themselves. And so uh, it's not easy actually to change from one supplier to another one in this type of industrial processes. There is the infrastructure challenge. Now, the bigger you go in scale, the more you need infrastructure. Hydrogen storage, hydrogen pipelines, those have a cost, and it's not always easy to justify on one project. And sometimes they need to be like mutualized, shared uh, between different customers. And that, that's where I'd say energy regulators actually uh, will come into the place. Uh, specific for projects in Australia, a lot of them, they are targeting export. 
of hydrogen or derivatives like ammonia to other regions like Japan, the other countries in Asia, Europe, etc. means that they need to invest into like an export terminal. You need the vessels and the ships actually to transport those molecules. Then you need to have the importing terminal uh, in the country of destination. And then you need actually to also ensure the way the molecule will, will reach the, uh, the end user. So there is a lot of steps uh, in those projects that need to be de-risked uh, one by one. And there's also a lot of, let's say, regulation actually for all those uh, steps. Certification of hydrogen or green hydrogen uh, is essential. And also the recognition that uh, if you produce hydrogen from renewable in Australia, it will be recognized to the right value, let's say, in the uh, end uh, destination. Obviously, it's um, also a very capex-intensive uh, type of industry and projects. So the financing of those projects uh, is also a major challenge with a new technology, uh, meaning that all the investors, they are, um, let's say, they pay a lot of attention to the maturity of the technology, to the risks, etc. So there is still a lot of work to be done there. And still, you need to, let's say, bridge the business case. And so you need to ensure that you can make money out of it. And so there, usually, regulation plays an important role in giving, say, premium value to the hydrogen in comparison to, to the incumbent uh, technologies. So those are some of the challenges I see on the projects, meaning our customers. As a consequence for us, there is a high uncertainty on those projects, meaning that it is difficult for us to anticipate and to forecast the market. A lot of projects, hundreds of gigawatts of projects being developed on the market today, but we cannot build factories on projects which are not realistic. So it means that only a few of them actually are reaching final investment decision. Obviously, those are the ones which are linked with a clear offtake strategy, and that can also say maximize uh, all the funding and, and the regulatory scheme. So on our side, the, the main challenge is the, this is the market uncertainty. And this is clearly the case also for Australia, where we see a huge pipeline of projects, but still very complex, very big in terms of size. Additional challenge on our side, is the product development. We continue to innovate in our products, but also we need to manage the, the regional specifications of our product. Uh, we were discussing Alizer 500, 1000, 5000. Yes, that's what we call product platforms, but then we need to they create the regional versions. And uh, the way uh, you say put your electric cables or equipment in Australia is not the same as, as we do in Europe, and it's even different uh, when you do it in Canada. So the management of those, say, versions of product is say, quite challenging and takes time on our side. How do we manage the growth? Uh, we have been increasing massively our workforce. There is all the hiring process, and it's not always easy to find the right skills uh, in the different regions. It's clearly um, a challenge. It means that also we onboard a lot of new people. You need to educate them. You need to train them. So it is, I'd say, quite complex to manage. I already mentioned, let's say, the, the new let's say, manufacturing techniques and that you are uh, integrating into our plans. That's also, let's say, uh, a change. Supply chain management, uh, we are increasing massively our production capacity. We need to ensure that our, uh, say, supply chain can follow and that it can also meet our, uh, say, quality requirements. And probably the last one, and then I give the floor to, to Michael, uh, it's about the execution capability. It's not the same thing as delivering, let's say, a 2.5 megawatt electrolyzer in a container and actually delivering a one gigawatt project in Australia, let's say in the middle of the desert. And so there you need to have the right teams in place, the right processes in place, the right risk management practice in place, etc. 
to make sure that we can deliver on those projects. And so a lot of challenges, but uh, that's also what makes it super interesting to work in that space. And I think also that uh, super interesting to be in an industry that can really deliver supporting the, the fight against uh, climate change. But I'm sure Michael has other challenges which are probably more specific to Australia in his mind. Well, I think that list of challenges you can see is end-to-end and applicable worldwide. I think it's timely that this podcast is being recorded when the Australian government, I believe, has just released their $2 billion Hydrogen Head Start Expression of Interest program. You know, and those significant financial investments are desperately needed, probably a bit overdue. Um, and we're playing catch-up in that area. So hopefully that funding, I'm sure, will go towards some of the larger-scale key-moving projects that are trying to support essentially sub-commercial applications. Um, that's one of the key challenges is that the economics are just not there yet until some of those elements that Denny mentioned can line up. Yeah, I think it is certainly a good start, as a, <laughs> the name might allude to, but uh, I think there could be more that the government is doing. And leaping back to one of Dense's points about the market on uncertainty, some of those kind of you know policy changes to make a more sort of holistic movement towards the, the decarbonisation. And a couple of the other challenges, I mean, you mentioned jobs and skills. Is, is there any particular skill sets that you think are going to be highly sought after in the coming years? I Well, particularly engineers, process mechanical, civil, electrical, a huge demand at the moment. And the engineering firms themselves, you only have to look at the job advertisements. There's uh, a lot of positions being advertised from engineering companies, from equipment manufacturers, from customers building their own project support teams. They're all requiring engineering skills. And then you've got technicians and service engineers as well. And this is one of the benefits that Cummins has. We've got a workforce that's already skilled. We've already started cross-training roles, bridging those electrical mechanical skills across to the hydrogen space and more specifically training them on electrolyzers, servicing and support. That's a great point, Michael. And perhaps a message to the young people out there who are potentially considering uh, career in engineering. I mean, you've heard on the podcast here, the challenges that we've got ahead of us, they're they're far and wide. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to change overnight. And it's going to need thousands and thousands of highly educated people to help us uh, on this journey together. So it's going to be an exciting industry to be involved with. And I encourage you to, uh, if you are considering a a career or further study in this sector, then uh, please give it some serious consideration. Are there any specific technologies either within Cummins and Accelerator that you're able to talk about at this stage or more broadly on the market that you're hearing from different parts of the supply chain that you're excited about, anything that you think is going to be not necessarily game-changing as a whole, but anything that sort of captured your attention that you've heard of recently? In terms of technology, obviously, we keep monitoring all the developments on on the market from the competition, but also from like uh, universities and, and research institutes. To be honest, we don't expect, I would say, a revolution, something that uh, will come from nowhere and would be like magic and that will take over all the markets. We believe more that the uh, say technology that we already mentioned uh, will be the one, I'd say, dominating the market. What I, I can mention is that say, the, the areas of research and also where we try actually to improve uh, the technology. And, and I think really what is clear is that uh, there is like 
a cost race, we need to reduce the cost of the technology to make it as affordable as possible to reduce the cost of hydrogen at the end of the day. And so to reduce cost, absolutely you need to go to standardization. And that's that's the first pillar of the cost reduction. And then there are a number of areas that you can explore to reduce the cost. That's in the way you design the product and making sure that you remove all the unnecessary components in the products. Um, but that's also in designing product that will last longer because the longer they last, obviously, the lower the cost of the hydrogen being produced. And one of the sensitive elements in the technology, that's the cell stack, uh, where, uh, in fact, the magic uh, takes place, where usually you, you break the uh, water molecules into hydrogen and oxygen. There is a degradation over time of the cell stack, and that's a, a major component that you need to replace uh, during the lifetime of a project. So if you can design a stack that you don't need to replace, it is, I would say, a major advantage. And that's clearly... Uh, what we are trying to do is to extend the lifetime of our um, sales tax. Also, in reducing the cost, we have a kind of like motto internally, which is like bigger is better. Each time we manage actually to uh, increase the size of a single component, it brings a lot of benefits on the rest of the system. So we have a, a product upscaling uh, strategy. There are a lot of things that you can do on the power side and the integration with renewable, with transformers, rectifiers, etc., something we're also exploring with our um, suppliers. There are still quite a lot of area of innovation in the materials and the components that we are using inside the technology. So on the MEAs, so the membrane electrode assembly, I already mentioned before the reduction of the use of uh, rare materials that will actually drive down the cost. So, so the use of different type of materials, which are not, let's say, linked to platinum, for instance, and that's clearly something we would find in anion exchange membrane type of technologies which is one of the uh, advantages. The manufacturing, the supply chain, the vertical integration, those are, I think this is really currently the focus of the old industry. And, uh, and then especially the, the management of the quality, uh, the quality of the manufacturing, the quality of the installation, and making sure that everything is working properly and also safely. I think safety is paramount in this sector, and it needs to be given the highest priority in the industry. How long would a, a cell stack typically last at the moment? That's in the range of 10 years, both for alkaline and PEM technologies. Realistically, what do you think can be achieved by Accelera in the next five years or 10 years? In terms of objective, Accelera uh, as a whole, uh, across the five I'd say, businesses that I've mentioned, we target 6 to $13 billion US by 2030 of revenues, which is massive uh, in comparison to what we do today. And out of this objective, something like 50% is linked with electrolyzers. So it means that our objectives are very ambitious, also knowing that revenues are when you have delivered the product to the customer and not when you take the order. So that, that's what is currently happening. Uh, we have, let's say, three main regions that have been identified as the wave one regions. That's where we actually started investments into manufacturing. They've been mentioned by Michael this was Europe, China, and North America. And we are actually currently exploring what we call the wave two countries, those countries that started a little bit later with regulation, which are also very promising. And obviously, in those wave two countries, you will find regions like Australia, the Middle East, some of the countries in Latin America, which are extremely ambitious in terms of, say, project. And, and we will need to be successful uh, in those wave one and wave two regions 
actually to meet our, let's say, uh, financial targets at the scale of Faxelera. Is there any other information that you'd like to share with the audience or perhaps any asks of the audience? Yes, but perhaps first of all, we think that it's also um, important to mention that we are trying to leverage the synergies of the let's say, traditional businesses of Cummins and with the new businesses of Accelera. And so we are clearly taking advantage of the people and the infrastructure that we have in place uh, in those 190 countries. And Australia is a perfect example of this. Also, we like actually to be active, let's say, over the entire lifetime of our projects. We are interested to provide, let's say, uh, services and, and aftermarket solutions for the proper operation of those electrolyzers over time. Uh, in terms of asked to the audience, we think that policy is probably the most important. Uh, we need to have hydrogen is a regulated market today. It is driven by politics, by say, political goals. But we need stable policies that can actually allow us to make investments that would give us the visibility over five, ten years. So that's clearly the main ask that's to provide the right policy signals and stable to incentivize, I would say, the, the projects. If I have a few recommendations also for uh, some of the, of the projects, is probably start, I would say, with projects uh, with a kind of like local off-taker. Uh, going to like export models, it's obviously very interesting on the long term, but it's, it is super challenging because of the what I just mentioned, say, previously. But there are already applications in Australia that can actually make the shift uh, to, I'd say, green hydrogen from electrolysis. And those should clearly, I'd say, be at, at the core of the first project actually being deployed. And then be patient. Uh, that's a recommendation. And there, are, there will be a lot of challenges. Each time you you resolve one, uh, you will meet another one. And you need to, let's say, lift them one by one. And then uh, little by little, your project actually is going to happen. Uh, we need to, to lift all those challenges one after the other. And that's also what uh, makes it interesting to work in the hydrogen business. Um, hydrogen is like the new friend. And uh, two or three years ago, uh, it was not known by most of the payers in the field of energy. But um, with hydrogen, um, everyone sees an opportunity for growth. It is a new application. It helps actually deep decarbonization, uh, especially in the art to a bed sector. And I think everyone in this industry gets up every morning thinking I'm doing something which is good actually to fight climate change. And so I would like to finish on those good words is that uh, there are still a lot of challenges, but it's super fascinating and super motivating to work in this, in this industry. And it will have a huge impact. Thank you. Yeah, we're building the plane as we're taking off. That's still the best description that I, I've heard and I, I use it almost on a daily basis speaking with customers. The engagement is not smooth. There's a lot of stop-start action as projects acquire funding or acquire partners. I've learned that silence is not a bad thing. That still means that projects are progressing. So they're all moving at different speeds. I think that's what we've touched on today. So... Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, and how can the audience follow what Accelera is doing? Are you on the socials? Yeah, LinkedIn is quite active there. You'll see a lot of posts from Cummins Inc., from Cummins Europe, and also Cummins Asia Pacific. Uh, the new Accelera branding you'll see across a lot of those posts. Formerly Twitter, X, <laughs> as I understand yeah. now, and in, active on the Instagram platform as well. Of course, there's the website, accelerazero.com, and my details, I guess, will be Q1 
communicated as the regional contact. Yeah, we can put those in the show notes. Dennis, Michael, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for the insight that you're able to uh, to share with the audience. I'm sure they'll thoroughly enjoy the episode and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Andy. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the Hydrogen Journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time. Bye.